Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am Panos Mitru. I'm the Global Gas Segment Director for Lloyd's at Lloyd's Register, and I'm delighted to be moderating this uh, panel on the LNG shipping sector. Uh, I wish, no, I don't wish, but uh, I thought that by that time I would change my statement in the opening of such panels, but uh, I will still use the same. There have never been more exciting time uh, given current volatility and opportunity, and uh, I would say that perhaps last year we thought that this would end, but it seems like there is no end in volatility, uncertainty, uh, and uh, there are many reasons for this. A growing global demand, a changing energy mix, uh, the need to extend maritime supply chains, but above all, I would say what we see today, access to energy and energy security which despite any transition concerns that are still there and coming with more ambition, uh, they continue this, uh, this attachment to energy security and access to energy continues to fuel growth in this sector. So we have a lot of ground to cover and uh, without further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, uh, our panel to you. So uh, from Kulko, we have uh, Richard Tyrell, uh, the Chief Executive Officer with uh, more around 25 years of experience in the sector. Uh, Knut Traholt, uh, the Chief Financial Officer of Flex LNG Management is also with us, uh, again with a substantial, with a quite numerous experience in the sector. And uh, Achilles Tashiulas, uh, Chief Financial Officer of Gaslog, uh, he has been with Gaslog for uh, more than around nine years now, and he has more than 13 years of experience in the sector. And Eduardo, we meet again, uh, Chief Financial Officer of Golar LNG, uh, also with uh, more than a decade of experience in the sector. And uh, given the fact that we have uh, quite a pluralism of uh, panelists of experience of our panelists in the, the sector. I will kick off with uh, the first question and let me start with Richard because we had those discussions in the recent past. So uh, we have an obvious challenge ahead of us, balancing energy security with our transition and sometimes they translate uh, to even ESG requirements. Uh, so Based on what we've seen in the last few years, can you give us your uh, perspective of what the market looks like today? What are the lessons that we learned in the last three years and perhaps what has changed, has improved since last winter? Sure, happy to take that, uh, Panos. And uh, I think firstly, I'd like to say that I really wish that people would remember that uh, LNG is actually quite a clean fuel certainly compared to fuel, uh, so, sorry, to coal. So I'm not uh, so sure that I'd sort of couch it as being sort of uh, them versus us. Um, uh, gas can reduce emissions by 50% versus coal, and uh, there's a lot of coal being burnt, and uh, if just, well, under 10% of that coal was switched over to, to gas, it would be about another 200 million tonnes per annum of uh, LNG, and uh, that's uh, a 50% increase on, on where we are today. 
uh, and accompanied with that would be a substantial reduction in, in emissions. So I just wanted to make that point firstly, but um, to your point on energy security, I mean, that's been a big driver of the market over the last uh, 12 months. I think generally people are better organized this year than what they were last year. So uh, we are not gonna see uh, the type of um, markets that we saw uh, at the start of uh, the last heating period. I think we might see um, issues a little bit later on uh, as some of these sort of um, global issues that we see uh, all, all of a sudden hit. Uh, hit the market, and uh, people are very much on, on, on edge uh, with uh, seen with uh, strikes in Australia um, somehow impacting the gas market in Europe um, when they're not particularly connected, uh, but still um, the two have uh, been connected by market participants. Um, you see uh, potential issues with uh, the Panama Canal. Uh, you see potential issues with gas st storage filling up in Europe, and then a contango trade resulting, you know, maybe some more shipments from west to east, and uh, these are the kind of drivers of shipping. So, you know, while volatility is maybe good in the short term, maybe not good in the long term, uh, it is there, uh, and uh, shipping kind of benefits um, either way. Yeah, uh, since this is a fundamental question, so how we see the market today, I will extend this to all panels. So, Knut. Yeah, I think I would add to uh, Richard's comment that LNG is clean. Uh, but it's also affordable and available, and there's infrastructure worldwide to handle it. So the challenge for uh, the energy mix today is that uh, LNG has been too expensive, uh, too expensive um, last year, and that has been replaced by coal. And the worst thing for the world is that uh, coal consumption is increasing, uh, and we're still debating if, uh, if LNG is uh, a clean but it is an available, affordable transition energy uh, that is, uh, it will support the world and in, in particular the emerging markets. Uh, what's happened with the energy crisis in Europe is that uh, the energy crisis has been uh, exported uh, to the emerging markets uh, that has been replaced by old products or, or coal and, and that's certainly not good. And if you look at FSRUs, it used to be the poor man's import terminal. But Europe has absorbed more or less all of the FSRU uh, capacity. Uh, so though the development of LNG should be done by FSRUs, and it should be done in the emerging market, not in Europe. Thank you, Knut. And Achilles, let me, let me just add, you have also contributed in the enhancement of the value chain in places like Europe, but also other parts of the world, extending your operations into FSRUs and FSUs. So, uh, what, what is your view about the, how the market is evolving and whether we can aspire that uh, LNG being cleaner and eventually more affordable, more accessible, with all this new development of infrastructure, what is the difference between today and two or three years ago? Well, first of all, uh, just to add uh, on top of uh, what you have heard is that LNG is the uh, fuel that uh, saved Europe last year uh, with the energy security issue that uh, it was created, which means that uh, the energy strategy was not pragmatic. 
So what really changed this year is that uh, the, you know, uh, the, the LNG, can you hear me? I, I think it should be closer to the micro. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I don't know. The, the LNG uh, players are taking a long uh, view. They uh, want to secure the asset, which has uh, created a very strong market for the term business. And this uh, is helping the industry overall uh, to, to plan its investments and uh, provide the, the product in a, in a more affordable way. And uh, this is a big change. It is the transition fuel. And this is now evident because it is available. Uh, it's not so much affordable in the middle of the crisis because of the lack of investments. And now we see more investments coming on the supply side uh, that it will uh, sort this out. So it is um, uh, clear in our view that the LNG is here to stay. It is the transition fuel uh, and available. It is a reliable solution today. Now, on the FSRU uh, market, we have seen, uh, and the FSU market, we have seen a rapid solutions mm -hmm. applied by countries to sort out the energy crisis. Um, uh, carriers have been used as um, uh, storage um, vehicles uh, to, you know, to support the energy security. And uh, the development of the FSRU has been extremely helpful for the carriers business because the FSRUs have stopped competing with carriers, uh, uh, you know, uh, hitting the rates and reducing the rates. And not only that, they um, uh, create increased uh, demand on shore for the carriers to deliver the LNG. All right. And Eduardo, what is your view on uh, how the market has the development of the market during the last three years? Well, what, what, what could be also the key takeaway from all this adventure we had? I think the key takeaway is really uh, energy security. So I think uh, LNG will continue to play a very important role uh, in the energy transition. Uh, I think it's remarkable what Europe has done over the last few years and months uh, with the construction and building up all the, the infrastructure to import LNG. The one point and the one small detail that sometimes uh, politicians, they, they miss, is that whenever you build an LNG terminal, it doesn't come with LNG. So there was a big scramble to be basically to sort out and to arrange FSIUs, to build uh, import facilities. But in the end of the day, they also have to supply the LNG. So in a sense, we may have got a bit lucky last year as a result of uh, maybe a warmer winter but also as a, re a result of uh, reduced uh, demand from China. But we have to note that we are still in a very delicate balance uh, when it comes to LNG supply. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there is an increased concern among a number of different customers of where are they going to source that incremental LNG. And we have seen recently, for example, whenever there is an issue all the way far, of, for example, in Australia, that can affect the market here. So we, we are in a very tight market with a very delicate balance. And I think the way I look at um, how China will affect the whole LNG consumption will really be an important factor here. So I think the key takeaway is, first of all, LNG terminals do not come with LNG. There is a need to source new uh, 
new, basically new volumes of uh, LNG, especially under long-term contracts. Okay, and this is exactly where I would like to start my second round of question. So, uh, long-term, mid-term, uh, the obvious uh, problem that we see, challenge that we see today is the fact that uh, contracts are becoming more short-term, contracts of supply of LNG, and at the same time, uh, on the shipping side, we observe some sort of assetification where um, the payback of ships and shipping assets is prolonged uh, towards 25 years uh, with no um, uh, TCPs, with no time charter parties uh, extending that much. So in, a, in, in conditions of high interest rates, uncertainty, uh, the transition risk on, on, on above our heads, how can someone perform a new sound uh, investment on LNG carriers, adding also the high price uh, of the asset that we see today? So what is the answer to financing and what should be the answer to financing? Because evidently we are, if we want to grow the value chain, we, we are in need of more ships. So, um, Richard, would you like to give us some thoughts about how easy or challenging it is to finance and have an LNG carrier project today? Well, the, the order book's quite big, so some people are figuring it out. Uh, you know, I, I do feel that uh, there have been people who got squeezed. They, they ended up ordering ships, which were maybe at a uh, you know, decent price, uh, but then they fixed them at 60, 65, $70,000 a day, only to find the cost of financing going up and squeezing their, 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 their margins. Uh, so maybe some of those uh, players um, are uh, not going to come back for more, um, but um, you know, th th there are people out there who can still uh, make, make it work. And um, of course, the big difference uh, in this market compared to what we've seen over the last decade is the fact that the new build prices are increasing and, and not decreasing. Uh, if you go back a few years, every year you'd get a better ship for less money. And that was very, very difficult to compete against. Um, now you can get a ship which is probably the same uh, for, for more money. And that's increasing, increasing the rates. And it's giving the owners some confidence to, to order. I mean, of course, everyone would like to see lower prices and everyone would like to see a slightly smaller order book. Um, and people would like to see a market where you could order a ship today and actually get it in 2026 and not get it in 2028. Um, but, um, you know, would I order a ship today? M maybe not, but that's mainly because of the terms uh, and the, the time that we'd have to wait. Would I order a ship in 2026 for a 2028 delivery? You know, absolutely. It's clear there's going to be a demand for LNG. And um, you know that would be a nice time to have some new bills. Uh, let me move to Eduardo this time. And Eduardo, what 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 is the reality on financing? Uh, and what are the challenges that we see today that perhaps were not there and were not part of our headaches ten years ago? So what we continue to see is an increased appetite from Asian lenders to continue to fund and provide uh, financing for assets even without contracts. So I think this is still uh, an important uh, feature in today's market. 
even without the impact of a higher inflation. So speaking not only about LNG carriers, but also about floating LNG, so FLNGs, uh, we continue to see an increased appetite from Asian lenders and mainly Chinese lenders to provide long-term financing uh, for projects because they do see the increased role of LNG as a, an, an even more uh, important tool during the energy transition. So I think I, I do agree with what Richard said here that uh, uh, if you're talking about deliveries in 2028, 2029, so there will be continued a, a very high level of interest to provide funding for, for those kind of assets. Do you feel, based on the exact comment you made, do you feel that in some way the whole market is, is let me put it politically correct, moving to China in terms of long-term contracts of supply, uh, long-term financing, anything in a long-term form comes from China eventually? I think this is mainly a consequence of a number of different factors. Yeah? So I think uh, the lack of capacity from other yards, for example, in Korea, I think this is also an important factor that is forcing uh, owners and and other players to go to China, but also the fact that uh, the yards in China, they have stepped up a lot their capacity, especially when it comes to more complex uh, projects. Again, talking about FLNGs. So I think we see that the Chinese yards, they are as capable as the Singaporean ones to build the new units. We have just had the delivery last week of our second unit, the Gimi, uh, which was done by, by Citrium in, in a fantastic uh, job. But we see yards in China which are as capable as that one to provide the same level of uh, work. So I think this is a, this is a trend that will continue to, to grow over the next few years. Okay, thank you. We will have the chance to have the, the question of quality as well. But uh, let me come to Achilles and ask regarding financing. What are the challenges we see? We know that you have been quite active in terms of, like uh, other companies in the panel, you've been uh, in the capital markets, uh, you've been uh, partnering out of the with, capital markets. Exactly, <laughs> in and out, and partnering with uh, uh, funds. So what's your view on how financing conditions have changed in the, in the LNG world, the LNG shipping world? The, there is definitely liquidity available. Now, um, including debt financing, Asian financing with selling leasebacks, um, private money, private equities, the capital markets, not so much. Um, I mean, it is to our surprise how much liquidity is available. Of course, it comes at a cost. Uh, what, um, you know, it's interesting is that um, ship owners are willing to take much greater risks uh, in terms of the, the cost of the, uh, of the asset that they are willing to invest. Because they, I mean, this pretty much 60 million of extra capex that um, uh, a new building costs, you are going to carry it until the end of the useful life, which, by the way, most probably could be 10 years less than it used to be. So not only there are new building orders today that they may take up to four years to, to deliver with no EBITDA, the pre-delivery uh, payments to shipyards can go up to 40% when it used to be 20, which is the most expensive 
part of the uh, financing. Um, and the cost of debt has gone significantly up. So, I mean, the returns that uh, you need to, uh, to make out of this uh, investment um, are really skinny uh, today, uh, and uh, which means that the ship owners or the market players are willing to, to take much more risk, or there is so much liquidity available that needs to go somewhere. What do you think? Have things become more challenging uh, through the years? No, I just want to pick up on the point that you make um, on the additional cost. Uh, in Flex, we ordered 13 vessels. On balance sheet, fully delivered more or less like 180, 186 million dollars. If you place a new building order today, you get it in 2027, 2028 from a Korean yard. Yard price is 265 million dollars. And with the accumulated interest, you're probably looking at the book value at 280 million. That's 100 million dollar more that needs to be justified. Um, in order to do that, you need a minimum a 10 year contract, probably to make sense, it should be longer. And uh, today it's more uh, above $100,000 per day. And that gives a, a decent return, not a fantastic return. And you still have some re residual value risk. So it's, it's obviously a, a difficult decision to go to a shipyard unless you have some certainty that you can achieve those, uh, those time charters. On the financing, uh, I've never seen, I've been 15 years in banking and probably the most conductive financing market I've ever seen. US banks are available, European banks are available, and the Japanese and the Chinese banks and leasing houses are more than available. Um, they can they actually- They haven't heard about the transition? Hmm? They haven't heard about the transition? No, uh, but what you, you can even get higher, sometimes higher leverage than you want. Uh, but that comes at the cost of a steep repayment profile. Uh, so it's all about having free cash flow available to pay dividends. Uh, and that's going to make, that that's gonna, uh, will then also attract the equity. Uh, but you can get the financing uh, or the leverage, back-to-back uh, -back more or less tenors, uh, repayment profiles are a bit too steep compared to the economic life on an LNG carriers. Um, and the margins are, uh, are more than competitive in a historic perspective. Uh, the only challenge now is the high interest rates. Indeed. So, um, coming now to uh, the key shipping challenge that we face today, and we're all uh, committed into addressing this, and this is no other than the transition and uh, the shipping transition as well. And, what would be the requirements for uh, ships operating? So today we've heard a lot about CII regulations that come, and ETS and fuel U have already been established. They're around the corner. Uh, there are going to be tangible costs coming from the operations of ships. Um, I'm wondering, we have a fleet uh, with distinct technology generations. So we have the initial first generation of steam turbine ships, then dual fuel, diesel electric, and uh, uh, now, nowadays for many years now, we have the two-stroke uh, solution. Uh, different technology generations with different efficiencies, various efficiencies, more than 300 ships out of uh, 700, 
probably approximately 700 in the water, will be in distress turmoil in the forthcoming years. At the same time, let me put some numbers because I'm sure we agree on that. We have 8 billion tons, 8 billion tons of coal being used. That was the global consumption of coal in 2022. When uh, the LNG trade lies at approximately 400 MTPA, million tons. So we're practically, LNG is practically a small portion of the coal trade and coal market. So can we afford, do we have the luxury to re remove ships out of this market as we speak? What is your view? And if you had the power to change one thing in the regulatory mix and based on the challenges you see today for ships, what would that be? It doesn't need to be a certain regulation, could be some sort of principle that we need to follow. So let me start with Achilles this time. Okay, uh, I'll start with the easy one. Uh, if, I, if there was one thing that I can change, this would be a consistency worldwide on the regulations because now we see the regulatory environment developing in Europe extremely aggressively. Europe believes that uh, they will sort this out with uh, regulatory you know, efforts. Um, other countries that they pretty much do nothing. And uh, this lack of consistency uh, will create a lot of challenges in the future. So this is what I would change. Now, will there be a role for um, uh, older vessels to, um, uh, to, to support the market? The answer is that uh, it depends by the LNG macro. If there is need for LNG, there will be a role because uh, we cannot just scrap 300 vessels uh, from the market. So there will be a role, maybe in certain routes, in certain markets or in certain trades, whatever, but there will be a role. And then eventually what we need is technological developments in order to, to help these vessels to, uh, you know, to improve their efficiency. Um, and this is how I see it. Okay. And um, Knut, please. I think uh, in LNG shipping, probably uh, the best example of when ESG makes sense and you make money out of it. With the new technology on the two strokes, they are so far more efficient and cleaner, and you make more money on them. It makes sense for the charters, and that's why you probably also see this large order book. Yes, there's a higher demand for LNG. There is more on-stream LNG capacity coming, um, but they are replacing. It's a fleet renewal, and they're paying up for it. And it makes sense because they're so, the cargo economics are so different from a steamer even for the tri-fuels, but uh, the two strokes, uh, both the Megis and the XDF, from a cargo economics, but also from an emission perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's actually a congratulation to an industry that has taken technology steps and investing into it. Um, when it comes to the life of, uh, of the steamers, as I said, it's all about the macro. For now, there's not enough uh, vessels, and therefore you need a steamers. But once, if you're looking into probably closer to 2030, you have regulations kicking in, but also 
It's, it's the cargo economics that will take them out of business. But then you have the new wave of 50% uh, of, uh, of the fleet is on, on order. Um, I think you were a bit modest on the size of it. In any other segment, it's a very large order book. Uh, the good thing about this order book is that most of it is contracted to long-term charters. Um, that will probably challenge in the spot market because most of them will be re-letted at some point in time. Uh, so that's why in Flex we have taken a more conservative view in going in long-term charters and locking in long-term charters and extending them at higher rates in order to bridge this new building order book where you basically end up, if you're on the spot market, competing with your, with your clients. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Let me just correct one thing. I'm, you said most of it is already committed to charters. I think after last week, perhaps there's nothing left. Yeah, there are, uh, all right. there are about uh, 26 open, okay. and then there are some uh, in the existing yeah. order fleet that will come on to renewal. By the way, we have two and 27 and two and 28. All right. <laughs> the book okay. value is about $170 million, so we are competing against 265. So. How much? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, on the same basis, the same question coming to Eduardo. Eduardo, what is your view about what we need in terms of the regulatory mix? And is, are we going the right way to be adding so much pressure on the LNG segment, given the, the economics between coal and LNG? And yeah, so I think I do agree with what Achille just said. There is a lack of consistency in what will be the exact requirement going forward. I think they, when it comes to Europe, there is a much more developed uh, environment, uh, especially for the next uh, years to come, uh, for specific uh, uh, regulations and specific emissions uh, uh, standards. But we have to remember that the, the LNG market is growing and growing even further. So I think when new customers, especially in emerging markets, are entering the market, uh, they will not necessarily be following the strictest uh, uh, environmental standard, but they will take whatever offer would be available. So in that sense, I will continue to see, uh, we, we continue to see the need for those older vessels to remain in the market. They will play a very important role in that spot market that Knut has mentioned about here, because the new orders or the new vessels that are coming into the market will enter the market in the next years. They are mainly already fully fixed for the years to come. So the, the spot capacity will basically consist of older vessels. So I think the industry or the market as a whole cannot afford to simply strike out that fleet and uh, force the market to pay a much higher uh, premium or, or price for a newer fleet. So that will happen, I think, gradually and over time. Okay, thank you. And let me make it a bit more difficult for you, Richard. So let me add to that question. What, what's your view about the balance between ordering new ships, retrofitting existing ships? Can we make it, okay, perhaps you should address that question to me, but can we make sure that existing ships will complete their life cycle? Yeah, I think it's a bit uh, difficult to give a broad brush answer to that question because ultimately it's a bit like with rental cars. You know, some people have got a family so they need a minivan. You know, some people have just gotten married so they want a convertible. 
and uh, with, with ships. Uh, you've got some people who want a big ship, particularly those people who are lifting out of the US. Uh, you've then got some people uh, in the Pacific Basin, for example, who are used to ships which are a lot smaller. So for them, stepping up from 130,000 cubic meters to 160,000 cubic meters is already quite a big leap, and they haven't got a need for, for a bigger one. So you know, you've got to look at each individual voyage. Uh, you've got to look at um, how the charterer is operating the ships. That's a key point. Uh, traders, they like to sit on cargoes waiting for a better price. Uh, you've got other more utility types who just want to go back and forth as quickly as possible. Uh, so, you know, it is one of those um, kind of horses for courses type, type, mm -hmm. type matter. Yeah. And that means there is still a big opportunity for the uh, maybe slightly uh, middle-aged ships um, on certain routes and obviously a big opportunity for the new ships on, on others. Thank you. That's quite valuable. And, uh, you know, we're almost out of time. I will only have a very short question, last question. So we're listening a lot about the new gas value chains and the, the, there's some confidence in the market that the only players who can dri really drive this uh, project forward are exactly the LNG players, the experienced LNG players. I mean, in both terms of technology operations and financing, uh, carbon dioxide, ammonia, hydrogen, we will refuge to the same players again. What's your view and have you done any plans in ex on extending in these new gas value chains? So, Achilles. We're doing plans on paper, it's easy. <laughs> what we need is uh, these technologies um, or, you know, new fuel to be, uh, you know, available, affordable uh, in scale, and uh, we are not there. I mean, it's, uh, it, it seems to be premature. It also seems to be the future, but um, I, mean, I don't know how it's going to develop. Uh, carbon capture also is, uh, is extremely uh, interesting. Uh, probably it's going to be a mix of uh, everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, today uh, it seems that, uh, I mean, personally I don't expect, uh, you know, drastic investments mm -hmm. or changes until we have uh, solid uh, technological solutions. Okay, and Eduardo, what's your view? Carbon dioxide, value chains, uh, hydrogen, is it going to be the next LNG or we're not there yet? And so I think we believe that LNG will continue to play a very important role in the energy transition. That transition will not be a short one. It will not happen tomorrow. It will not happen within five years. It will happen in a longer time frame. And I think we are, I would not say at the beginning, but we still have a very long journey ahead of us in the LNG industry. So I think uh, we, uh, speaking about uh, Forgola in that case, we continue to see the role of LNG uh, as a very important tool in the energy transition. We've seen more recently the, the, the importance of uh, energy security I think the theme a little bit earlier than that was more focused on emissions, uh, but energy transition includes a number of different factors. So I think LNG really is the right fuel for the moment and uh, is the one that will play a very important role in the years to come. Thank you. And Richard, one word, just LNG for the time being, or do you have other things in mind? 
I, mean, I think uh, I agree that there's a lot of PowerPoint presentations out there which are yet to reach uh, escape velocity and may never reach escape velocity. Uh, LNG is a good interim solution. I think there are other solutions, ammonia potentially, uh, for example. Uh, however, because none of them have the energy density of fossil fuels, they're all going to need a bit of subsidy. And uh, the IRA has been a major, uh, will have a major impact uh, on, on what actually happens next. Um, but without that kind of support, it's, it's going to be tough. Knut, thank you. Perhaps some more positive view on <laughs> the next value chains? Well, it took a very long time before LNG was an acceptable uh, cargo to handle. And it will take the same uh, amount of time to get ammonia and hydrogen. It will come, but it will take time. And uh, when you say LNG is interim, I think we need to put it in perspective. That's probably decades. Yes. Um, when it comes to fuel on our ships, we will stick with, uh, with LNG. And I think the next step for an LNG carrier will probably be carbon capture on board. You have the cooling that is needed, um, but the technology and efficiency of, of carbon capture on board is not there yet. Yes, correct. So uh, there's a long way to go. Uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing these valuable thoughts. And uh, uh, I will ask the audience to give our panelists a big round of applause.